A pastor and author, Tim Keller, tells a story of a time when he and his wife Kathy learned the necessity of prayer in their lives. The 9-11 attacks had just taken place, and Keller was pastoring in Manhattan. He said that the whole city, understandably, had this sense of corporate depression and discouragement. His wife Kathy was struggling with the effects of Crohn's disease. Then, as if things couldn't get any worse, he was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And they also, as a a married couple at this time, recognized that they weren't really praying as they felt they should be praying. And as they reflected on this season, listen to what Kathy told her husband, Tim. Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine. A pill every night before you were going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, she said. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. Well... If we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all that we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't just let it slip our minds, end quote. That's really how James is bringing this letter to an end, as we see today. We've been studying this incredible book for the last couple of months, and James has labored to show us that our belief in God and His gospel has to translate into right living for God in this world. Right believing leads to right living. Right living in regards to our suffering, James has taught us. Right living in regards to how we treat one another, how we speak how we live humbly, and and so on. And what James has done, similar to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he has given us a Christian ethic. Here's how you live as followers of Jesus. Here's how your faith works, right? And so how does he tie it all together in these final verses? He does it with a call to prayer, right? That's what we're seeing here. It's as if he's saying, listen, if we don't pray together, we're not going to make it. We're not going to put our faith to work. Our right thinking about God is not going to translate into right living about God. And so in this final passage, James shows us what it looks like to put our faith to work through prayer. And not just not just general prayer, not just a general call for us to pray as individuals, but specifically to pray together. And so as we walk through this passage this morning, uh, we're going to see this really in three ways. First, we're going to see the occasion of prayer. That answers the question, when do we pray? Verse 13. Then secondly, we'll see the community in prayer, who's praying, verses 14 through 16 and 19 through 20. And then third, and finally, we'll see the encouragement 
for prayer in verses 17 and 18. And so let's walk through this passage. First, in verse 13, James lays out for us the occasion of prayer. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's how he starts. He begins with this call to prayer. And before we get into the the occasion there, think for a moment about what prayer is. It's important for us to know. Prayer can simply be defined, the simple three-word definition is talking to God, just communicating with God. As Christians, we know that it's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's the privilege and duty of every follower of Jesus, of every Christian, to communicate directly to God, the Father. How does that happen? Through Christ the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's what we mean when we say prayer. And, and it's important to pause and reflect on that for a moment, because if we, if we truly understand what's happening when we pray, you and me, finite, broken, sinful human beings like you and me, directly communicating with the God of the universe, having His ear for our requests and our, our concerns and the cries of our hearts, if we get that, if we understand what that is, then we will be motivated, right? We'll be, we'll be encouraged and motivated to do that which James is, is calling and commanding us to do, which is to pray in every circumstances. And so when, when is it proper for us to pray? That's how James is starting here. And he gives us two scenarios, and the purpose is just to cover both ends of the spectrum, right? First he says, is anyone among you suffering? So James is, is still on this theme of, of suffering, that's from the previous passage, what we saw Pastor Clint walk us through last week. But it's not just from last week and, and, and earlier in this chapter. It's really throughout the whole book, isn't it? In fact, suffering bookends the letter of James. James 1, 1 2, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, he tells us when we face trials, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to count it all joy when we face trials of, of various kinds. And that's the kind of suffering in mind here at the end of chapter 5 as well. Trials and sufferings of various kinds. It could be be physical, uh, as we'll see in a moment. It could be persecution, which James' readers uh, were experiencing. It could be emotional. It could be relational. It could be anxiety about your day. Whatever the difficult circumstance of suffering may be, what is James saying? He's saying, take it to God in prayer. So in one sense, James is uh, elaborating here on what we heard last week. What did we hear in the previous passage? We're to be patient in suffering. We're to establish our hearts in him as we await his coming. Well, brothers and sisters, how do we do that? James tells us we can't do that unless we're pouring our hearts out to him in prayer. So, so what James has done throughout this letter, he's, he's helped us to know the truth that God works in our suffering. Right? He's, he showed us that theological truth, that doctrinal reality of the coming of the Lord. Jesus is going to return. So that should be ground for our patience in suffering. But how do we take those doctrinal truths about suffering, and, and really any doctrinal truth for that matter, how do we take those 
in our minds and claim them as experiential realities in our hearts? How do we experience the goodness and beauty of those things? Well, James says it. It's by prayer. It's by communicating with God in prayer. And Paul explains this. James is brief here. Paul explains this uh, in another passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. And it's the same principle. He says this, Do not be anxious about anything. You can call that your suffering. right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Translation, right? Take it to God in prayer, and He will give you peace. Not necessarily He will fix the circumstance. Maybe He will, maybe He won't. But when you bring your sufferings, your anxiety, the condition of your heart in those times, when you bring it to God in prayer, what does He promise to give you? His peace. I remember experiencing um, this sort of peaceful prayer very vividly in a season of suffering several years ago. Uh, Within a period of about six months, A close friendship was destroyed before my eyes. Um, In addition to that, I was involved in a a car accident where someone else lost their life. And I found out about uh, a mass on my brain the size of a golf ball. Now, when I told someone that story before, they jokingly said, uh, was the mass the size of the golf ball or your brain? And just... To let you know, yeah, that's a funny joke, right? The, the mass was about the size of a golf ball. And I had to under, undergo all these sort of tests and scans and, and, and wait, this sort of waiting period of seeing what are we going to do here? Are we going to have to have brain surgery? Are we going to have to you know, use a giant needle to, to drain this thing? What is it? right? And all of that together caused great just inner turmoil and anxiety for, for me, and I'm sure you've been in, in uh, situations like that as well. And I remember doing what we tend to do in the midst of trials. Right? We, we either go one of two directions or sort of wade between either uh, falling into self-pity and despair right, or self-reliance. Isn't that what we, we tend to do? Now, self-pity, it, it paralyzes us. We, we don't do anything. Because in our minds, everyone and everything, including God, is against us. So we tend to sulk, and so we don't, we're paralyzed, right? But self-reliance, on the other hand, it, it burns us out. It tires us. Why? Because we work tirelessly to bear the weight of suffering apart from God, which is what He never intended for us to do. So in this moment of anxiety, of trial, of of suffering, I was, I was anxiously wading back and forth into, into sort of each of those categories. And by the way, know this, neither of those things are expressions of faith in God, are they? And so it made, it made sense that this was a time um, in which I wasn't truly praying. I wasn't obeying this call here that James gives us. But providentially, by God's grace in that season, he directed me to this little booklet by J.C. Brumfield. I've never heard of him. I, I really don't know who he is. He was a, a pastor who just wrote this little booklet. And it was called Help for Troubled Christians. And in this, he, he reminded suffering Christians of this truth, this James 5.13 
Philippians 4, 6, and 7 truth. Bring all of it to God in prayer. And, and I began to, to pray instead of strategize. Right? I began to pour my heart out to God in prayer and entrusting it to Him. And I remember sitting in a doctor's waiting room one day, and we had undergone these tests, and I was sort of waiting to hear uh, the results uh, of, of whether or not I'd have to go through surgery or, or what, and experiencing and sensing this supernatural peace from God. And I knew that whatever the outcome, it was, it was as sure as the rising sun in my heart. I knew that whatever the outcome of God's will in that moment, I can trust Him. And He gave that peace. Now, by God's grace, that brain mass ended up being something called an arachnoid cyst, something that's harmless, it's still there. Um, so don't hit me too hard on the left side of my head or it might cause some, some problems. Um, so, so I'm very thankful for that. But I, I sincerely believe that had the results been worse, had something else um, needed to happen, that I would have still had that peace supernaturally given through prayer. Right? Why? Because that's a promise of God's Word. Let me just encourage you. Are you under the weight of trials this morning? Are you experiencing anxiety because of the circumstances of your life. Go to God in prayer. James is very brief here. He just says, if you're suffering, pray. He doesn't doesn't tell us what to pray. Should we ask for our circumstances to change? Should we resign ourselves to God's will in prayer? Should we be honest with our doubts and frustrations to God? And, And the answer to all of those things is yes. Whatever it is. Go to God in prayer. He can handle it. If you're suffering, pray. Then, James, uh, the the pendulum sort of swings in the other direction, right? James turns to the other end of the spectrum in the second half of verse 13, and he says, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So what about those who aren't suffering? What about those of you who everything at, at work is going great? you got a raise. Praise God. Amen for raises. Friendships are great. Marriage is great. Circumstances are all in good order. James knows, and God knows, that there's a great danger for God's people in times of blessing. We can easily forget where the blessing comes from. Now again, this reminds us of something that's not new to the book of James. What has James already told us in chapter 1? Every good and perfect gift is from where? Above. Coming down from the Father of lights. So when all is well, when we're, we're, what happens when all is well is we're tempted to think, oh, look what I've done for myself. Look at, look at all this, this work of my hands. And James says, no, 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 no. The remedy for such self-reliance is to praise God for your blessings. And by the way, not just to praise, which is a form of prayer, communicating to God, but to sing praise. Why? Because singing is an expression of joy and gratefulness and gratitude. That pay raise, that peace in your family, that life-giving relationship, that healthy church, that season of spiritual growth where you're just in love with Jesus, that breath that you and I just inhaled and then exhaled. All of it is a gift from God. So if you're cheerful, if you're glad, give 
glory and praise to God for it. As Jonathan Edwards puts it, he says, these are but scattered beams. These blessings are just scattered beams. But, he says, God is the sun. God's the source of those things. So praise his name. He's essentially saying, let the blessings of your life lead you to praise and thank God. Why? Because he's the source of those blessings. And so in essence, what James is is saying here is, listen, guys, pray always. And so ask yourself in light of verse 13, does this describe my prayer life? Is my prayer life balanced? Do I only pray when things are tough as a sort of a last resort? Or, or do I praise and thank God when things are going well, but, but when things aren't going well, I ignore prayer? See, God wants, wants us to have a holistic and consistent faith that's ever dependent upon Him through prayer. And listen, if you need help with this, God has given us a treasure trove of what this looks like in a book of the Bible in the Old Testament called the Psalms. As I was studying this this week, I I realized if someone were to ask me, how would you sum up the book of Psalms? I would quote James 5.13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's half of the Psalms. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. That's the other half, right? 150 examples of what it means to pray in suffering and, and praise in blessing. So, so a practical takeaway for you maybe to learn how to do this for the next month, just five Psalms a day. You'll get through it in a month, right? But, but immerse yourself in those and you'll see what it means to, to answer this call to prayer in every circumstance, in every occasion. That's the occasion of prayer in suffering and blessing. We, we, can, we can pray and we should pray in any occasion. Now, number two, we now turn to the community in prayer. And this is the largest uh, section where we'll spend most of our time this morning. But James shows us in verses 14 through 16, and then we'll see in a moment, we'll look down at 19 and 20. He's showing us who is praying. And what we see here is that it's not just one individual, but it's the entire Christian community completely dependent upon God in prayer. Listen to what he says. Is anyone among you sick? Verse 14. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, is anyone among you sick? This this sickness is a serious physical illness. And we know this for a number of reasons. First, the sick person needs the elders to come to him. And that hints at the fact that this is someone who's unable to get to the elders. Then we also see the elders are called to pray over the sick person. That's actually a unique phrase. We kind of use that often. We're going to pray over someone. But this is the only place in the New Testament where that phrase is used. And it gives the picture of the elders coming to this person Um, and standing over them as if they're bedridden and have this serious illness and then praying over them. And and that's important, as we'll see in a moment, because what they're asking for is great. So there's a great need and there's a great faith to meet that need. And now, this is one of those passages, let's just say this, that is, is difficult in the sense that you have to really dig a little 
to understand what's, what's going on. And let that just be a reminder to you that God's Word is worth it, right? The truth of God's Word is worth uh, hard, uh, thought-out study to understand what, what the meaning is. Now, if you were to study what scholars have said about this text, you'll find a number of differing opinions. And if, if you're like me, you, you read this text, you hear that, and you've got a lot of questions. And so I just want to walk through a few of these questions and really see what's happening in this community of prayer. And the first question is, okay, why call on the elders? Why elders? Do they have special powers? Right? Are they sort of like Jedi Knights who can come in and sort of use the force to bring healing? Uh, by the way, no, they're not. So, so why the elders? Well, the elders are called and qualified men who lead the local church. That's what elders refers to. And they're called here as, as in one sense, as representatives of the church to, to pray for this bedridden sick person. So that doesn't mean that only the elders should, should pray or that others weren't praying for this person. But the situation is so serious, the sickness was so serious, that the leaders of the church were called as representatives for this special time of prayer. But also, not only are they representatives, elders, by the nature of the office, are to be godly and mature men of faith. You can see that when you read the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 or in, in Titus 1. In other words, if you're sick like this, these are the kind of men you want praying for you. Men who have been recognized and set apart as those who have a, a deep and abiding faith in God. They believe that God can do a mighty work through prayer, even though they themselves are imperfect people, just like all of us. Okay? Then James tells us that the elders are to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So why, why anoint with oil? What's going on here? Now, this oil wasn't medicinal. Okay, So this isn't uh, an applying of medicine. It's not like the elders had an essential oil subscription <laughs> that they would, you know, bust out for various sicknesses. Um, no, nor is this, as some would wrongly teach, a dispensing of grace to the individual. Okay, so the oil doesn't have, doesn't carry any sort of grace with it. And we know this because of the phrase that James uses. He says, anoint in the name of the Lord. And that phrase shows that if, if, if someone is healed, it's God who heals. It's the name of the Lord, not the oil. Okay, So if it's not medicine and it's not a, a means of grace, then what is it? Well, when we look at the rest of Scripture, we see anointing oil as symbolic of consecrating or setting apart someone for the will of God. Okay, we see this in the Old Testament Israelite priests in Leviticus chapter 8. We see this in the kings of Israel like King David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. When we come to the New Testament, the only times we see this is um, in this passage here in James 5. And then in Mark 6.13 where Jesus' disciples are anointing the sick as well. So Jesus' disciples in Mark 6... And the New Testament church, James included, understood this practice, anointing with oil, as a way to say, God, we're setting apart this person unto you in your sovereign will. It's a way of saying, God, whatever you intend, as we're about to pray for this healing, we are setting this person apart for you to work as you choose. Okay, That's what the anointing oil is here. Now, the biggest question here is, what is the prayer of faith? 
Because James then says, and the prayer, if you, you do these things, right, the elders come, they pray, they anoint with oil. Then James says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And this is certainly the most misunderstood, I would say even abused verse of this passage. Um, many have gotten the idea wrongly of uh, faith healers from this verse, as if there are men and women who have a special gift from God to heal at their own will and discretion anytime they choose. That's not what's being espoused here. And in fact, you can't find that kind of at-will automatic healing anywhere in the Bible. I would say it's, it's, um, that's even damaging to true faith. To give you an example, imagine you're seriously ill and you ask for a supposed uh, man or men of faith to come pray for you and they say, we have the gift of healing. We can heal at will. And they pray for your healing. But healing doesn't come. And you want to know why. This is a godly person, and supposedly they can heal, but but I'm not healed. And so you ask, okay, well, why wasn't I healed, faith healer? And the person quotes James 5.15. Well, James 5.15 says the prayer of faith will heal the one who is sick. That's a guarantee. Therefore, if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. Now, If that sounds strange to you, that kind of false teaching happens all the time in churches in our country, right? And it's devastating to the faith. Why? Because now, on top of the burden of your physical ailment, is added the unnecessary guilt of not believing God enough. See, that's a false gospel. It It treats God more like a vending machine than the God of the universe, doesn't it? You put in your prayers... And I'll serve out healing as long as you put in enough. When in fact the scripture gives us plenty of examples of those of great faith who were not healed or did not heal others. For example, Paul in 1 Timothy 5.23. He gives his protege, Timothy, medical advice for his stomach issues. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't rebuke Timothy for his lack of faith. He doesn't say, I hear you're sick. What's wrong with you? Why don't you have enough faith? Nor does Paul himself say, I am Paul, an apostle, a man of great faith, and I heal you. There may have been praying for healing for Timothy's sicknesses. In fact, I would assume there probably was. But in God's sovereign prerogative, he wasn't healed. And so Paul gives him medical advice. In in 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul speaks of a close companion, Trophimus, whom he left ill at Miletus. He left him there ill, meaning Paul was with him while he was ill. He was not healed, and Paul moved on. So even Paul, with all his apostolic power, could not heal at will. And none of us would say, well, Paul, you just don't have enough faith. Okay, so we know what the prayer of faith isn't. It's not this, uh, this prayer wielded whenever we, bring, uh, whenever we please to bring about healing. It's not something that's automatic. But it's really not helpful if we define what it isn't, but not talk about what it is. So what is it? Well, 
The language here literally reads, the prayer of the faith. And it is a unique prayer that is, in the moment, sovereignly empowered with a guarantee to the person or persons praying that God will heal in that moment. Okay, So the scenario of this passage is the elder, elders gathered around the sickbed, and as they're praying for healing, God gives a supernatural gift of faith in that moment and an assurance that He is going to answer that prayer and give the gift of healing. Let me give you a, a quote from Sam Storms, who has done a, a lot of study. In fact, what we're doing now in one sermon, he's, he, he walked through in four sermons. And so we'll link to that later. Um, so you can see some of that if you want to go deeper here. But listen to what he says on the prayer of faith. Quote, When God chooses to heal, He produces in the hearts of those praying the faith or confidence that such is precisely His intent. The particular kind of prayer to which James refers in response to God, to which God heals, is not the kind that we may exercise at our own will. It's the kind of faith that we exercise only when God wills, end quote. So in other words, there will be times, James tells us, when elders are praying, or when, even when others are praying, and they're praying, God, please heal this dear brother. We've commit, please heal this dear sister. We've commended them to your will. We've set them apart for your work. We know that you're able. Please do it. And as they're praying that prayer, by the sovereign power of God's Spirit, they're filled. And the prayer, God, I know you can, becomes, God, I know you will. And God, I know you are right now. That faith is given that God is praying and God uses that in a mysterious and sovereign way, uses that prayer of faith to bring about the healing of this person. We can't explain it. We can't manufacture it, but we receive it as a gift of faith and God supernaturally uses it to bring about healing. He raises the person up. That's the prayer of faith. Now, just so you know, we love to pray for you. Clint, Jeremy, myself, we love to pray for you. Please ask us. This example uh, is very big and very specific, and we would certainly do what James calls us to do when, when that situation arises. But don't feel as if you have to be on your deathbed to ask us for prayer, right? Whatever the need, let's seek prayer. Why? Because do you see what's happening here? Both asking for prayer, this man was told to ask the elders for prayer, and both praying for healing are expressions of faith. Right? True and genuine faith. Now, then verse 15 ends with uh, an, another statement that may bring about some questions. It says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So this idea of sin is introduced. Now, and James is showing us that sometimes, though not always, physical illness is a result of sin. And we need to be careful here not to over-spiritualize sickness. That's what was common in James and Jesus' day. If you have a cold this week, it's, it's probably not God's judgment on you because you didn't read your Bible last week. <laughs> Maybe, I don't, I don't know. 
Um, Neither do you, but probably not. Job's friends in the book of Job gave him terrible advice and counsel in the midst of his suffering because they assumed that he was suffering because of his sin. And they were wrong. He wasn't. We can't know God's secret will in this regard, right? And that's why James says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Not because he has committed sins. At the same time, we also have to be careful not to despiritualize sickness, which is our cultural problem, isn't it? In our culture, every physical ailment has only a physical answer. And what James is reminding us here is, listen, friends, we are both body and soul. We are spirit and flesh. While we can't always know if sickness is a direct judgment or not, it may be. So at the very least, sickness should always remind us that we're weak and sinful beings in need of God's grace and forgiveness. Or or to put it another way, uh, sickness may not be a direct result of your sin, but all of us are sick with sin. Therefore, all of us need the forgiveness that Christ offers. So that, that phrase at the end of verse 15 should lead us anytime we're experiencing suffering, to look inward and confess sins to God and look in faith to Christ in repentance. Then in verse 16, James moves on to a more broad example of praying in the church. He moves from narrow example of elders praying for someone who's very sick to the entire church praying. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, what James is doing here, he's really giving a a practical remedy to all the infighting we've seen within this book. We've seen a lot of that, haven't we? James has addressed those who are showing partiality to others. Um, Prejudice, chapter 2. They've been slandering each other with their words, chapter 3. There's been prideful fights and boasting within the church, chapter 4. And and now he's saying, listen, do you know what would help solve all of that just on a practical level? If, we, if you got together and confessed your sins and prayed for each other, right? I've, I've seen this as a parent. Right? The kids will be fighting with each other. And uh, when the fight is over, we're tr- you know, trying to encourage them, teach them how to reconcile and, and, and work it out with, with words. But w- one of the things we've done before is we've made them hug it out. I don't know if you guys have ever practiced the art of hugging it out. Um, but, you know, having the siblings brother and sister, uh, hug each other for, for 10 seconds. And it's so funny because they reluctantly hug each other with scowls on their face, but they're kids, you know, so, so, you know, while they're hugging by the end of the 10 seconds, the scowls become smiles and laughs and they're sort of, you know, picking each other up. And it's like, it's like they suddenly remember, oh yeah, we're brothers. We're sisters. <laughs> we're, we're family. And, and so you could even say that prayer and confession is a way of hugging it out in the church, right? If you want to use that phrase. James wouldn't use the phrase hugging it out, but we can, right? It's bringing this restorative relationship back together. And C.S. Lewis brilliantly says this. He says, friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. <laughs> How many times... Has someone confessed something to you and you said, you know what, me too. I struggle with that same thing. And it's forged a deeper relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. Or you've, you've prayed for a need 
maybe in gospel community. And someone else has said, you know what? I have that same exact need. Let's, let's pray for one another on that. You see, a community that prays and confesses their sins to one another is a community without pretense and full of honesty. I don't have to impress you because guess what? You're a sinner just like me. And you don't have to worry about what I think. Why? Because I'm a sinner just like you. All of us need Jesus together. When we recognize that, we confess our sins together in relationships, and we're praying for one another, a lot of those petty disagreements just fall by the wayside, right? And that creates a culture of love and Christ-likeness that is willing to, to go after each other when we need to. And that's what verses 19 and 20 show us. Jump down there for a moment. We'll come back to 17 and 18. But while, while verses 14 through 16 sort of focus on... Um, physical healing and and prayer, confessing our sins to one another. Verses 19 and 20 are really an extension of that, that you could say focus on spiritual healing. Verse 19 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, there's, there's a lot that could be uh, said here. No. But as the community of God's people, we're, we're praying together. We're praying for healing. We're, we're to be confessing our sins and praying for one another. But James also tells us what to do when spiritual troubles threaten those around us, right? Our prayer for one another, our deep relationship with one another, leads to action for one another as a community of faith. And so if we're living as the community in prayer, then when one of us wanders away from the gospel, that's a brother or sister that we have to go after. We have to bring correction. We have to show them, lovingly speak the truth to them in order to bring them back. So the ultimate question in these verses for us is simple. Because that's a lot there. So how can we sum it up? Maybe one, one question for us to consider. And it's simply this. Are we prayerfully dependent upon God and committed to one another. Both for physical needs in prayer, for spiritual needs, and living life together. Are we prayerfully dependent upon God and committed to one another? Okay, so we've seen the occasion of prayer, we've seen the community in prayer, and lastly, we see the encouragement for prayer. And if you look, actually, not verse 17, the last half of verse 16. James gives us an example um, that's meant to encourage us in our praying. The last half of verse 16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. First thing I want to point out here that you may not see in just a cursory reading is that we're to be encouraged by the gospel in our prayers. As we look at the last half of verse 16, who is the righteous person? Now You may hear that and say, oh, that's not me. I'm not an elder. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. I'm I don't even feel like a mature Christian. I struggle so much. And then you write yourself off from access to the power of prayer. 
That's not James' intent. In fact, church, do you, do you know what you are in Christ? According to the gospel and God's word, you are righteous in Christ. The greatest encouragement to prayer should be the gospel message of Christ making us righteous in Him. The best summary verse for this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Theologians throughout history have called this the great exchange. It says, For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, by faith alone in Christ alone, Christ takes on your unrighteousness and gives you His righteousness. That's the gospel. You are made righteous by Jesus. And if you haven't yet, if you're here and you have not yet received Christ in that way, you have not believed the gospel I urge you, believe this truth and find life in Christ. Listen, this isn't only the grounds for powerful prayer. It's it's our only hope in life and death. Is that we are given Christ's righteousness. And He takes our unrighteousness upon His shoulders on the cross, goes to the grave, dies, but does not stay dead, raises from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death and unrighteousness, ascends to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, victorious. And all who believe that message are made righteous. So the prayer of a righteous person is the prayer of the Christian. And in the gospel, we who receive this truth receive Christ by faith, we get both a positional righteousness and a practical righteousness. What do I mean by that? Well, positional righteousness means we stand before God as fully righteous through faith in Christ who has given us His righteousness. Not because of our own works of righteousness, because we have none. They're all stained with sin. But because of Christ, we stand, our position When God looks at us, He sees Jesus. right? But also, not only do we have this positional righteousness, that produces in us a practical righteousness, which means that because of Christ in us, we now aim at living righteously and holy by His power. It's simply another way of summing up this book, isn't it? Faith in Christ leads to work for Christ. Positional righteousness in Christ should lead us to practical righteousness. And brothers and sisters, if that's you, you have power when you pray. Your your prayers have great working. God hears you and He delights to hear you and He answers you according to His will because of Christ. That gospel truth should encourage us to prayer. But there's another encouragement here and that's the encouragement Uh, by the examples of the saints before us. And specifically here, James tells us a story about Elijah from 1 Kings 17 and 18. 
Elijah was a hero to God's people. He was a rock star prophet. Yet James doesn't call him a prophet here, does he? Even though he was one. Instead, what does James zero in on? He says he was just like us. He had a nature like ours. In fact, Elijah struggled like we did. He struggled with the fear of man. He struggled with faith in God. At one point, he despaired of his life so much that he asked God to take him out. Yet, God heard his prayers. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And it didn't. And he prays again. Three years, six months later, and it rains. Right? The phrase there, he prayed fervently that it might not rain, is actually Uh, Literally, in prayer, he prayed. It's as if to say, okay, there's prayer, and then there's really prayer. There's praying and talking to God, then there is prayer that is so fervent and so driven and so committed. That's the kind of prayer that Elijah was praying. And not because of Elijah's track record of miracles, though he had that, and not because of his title of prophet, he had that, but because a righteous saint was pleading in faith, God answered. And it didn't rain. And then when that same righteous saint prayed again, it rained. See, James is showing us that God works mightily through flawed people, through sinners like you and me who are dependent upon Him in fervent prayer. Don't write yourself off from the power of prayer. He heals He draws in wandering sinners. He even stops rain through prayer. And the emphasis here is on the intensity of prayer. Listen, I was so convicted of this in studying this text this week. It's not that I don't pray. I do. I'm sure most of us do. I hope we all do. But the question I was confronted with in this example is, in prayer, do I really pray? Is there a fervency To return to Kathy Keller's words from earlier, do I believe that if I don't pray, I'm not going to make it? Do I believe that I need God like I need water and food, so I'm going to carve out time to get alone with God? I'm going to carve out time to get with others and pray. I'm not going to let my schedule push Him out. Because if I don't, I'm I'm not going to make it. I'm going to cultivate a prayerful spirit as I go about my day. Why? Because I desperately need Him. I'm going to pray with and for my church family because without God's work, brothers and sisters, what are we? In Genesis 32, Jacob wrestled with God and said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Has that kind of praying defined your devotional times? God, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to leave this prayer closet until I experience the goodness of your grace, the blessing of your presence. The persistent widow in Luke 18, pestered and bothered and, you get the sense, annoyed the judge for justice until he gave it. And Jesus tells that story to his disciples so that we may never give up in prayer. He says that's how we should be with God. Jesus, who was busier than all of us, prayed often. He prayed in private with his disciples. He even pleaded with his father for his wrath. If there was any way to pass over him, 
the night before his death, before resigning himself to God's will. Church history, Eusebius tells us that James, the author of this letter, letter, knelt down in prayer and worship so much that his knees became hard and calloused like those of a camel. We have so many examples throughout God's word, throughout church history, I'm sure in this room from one another of persistent prayer, fervent prayer. Let's learn from them and be encouraged by them. I've seen a friend healed of cancer. I've seen damaged relationships that seem to have no hope completely restored. I've seen hearts healed. I've seen sinners saved as a result to the fervent prayers of the saints. And I'm sure you could share countless more stories yourself. Brothers and sisters, how will we see Waltham, Greater Boston, Hyannis, Cape Cod, the nations, how will we see these places saturated with the goodness, truth, and beauty of Jesus and His gospel if we aren't fervently praying? That's something that cannot happen without a great work from God. Therefore, it demands great prayer from us, His people. You see, the fervency and frequency of our praying is a spiritual thermometer of our faith. 